Welcome to the Dignity and Respect in Action podcast. This series is brought to you by the UMass Office of Equity and Inclusion and features members of the university community and other experts in the field of diversity, equity, and inclusion. In these episodes, we'll learn about the work and experiences of our guests and gain insight from their expertise. Your host for this podcast is Dr. Nefertiti Walker, Vice Chancellor of Equity and Inclusion and Professor of Sport Management in the Eisenberg School of Management. And now, here's Neff. Welcome to Dignity and Respect in Action, the podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Nefertiti Walker. My pronouns are she, her, and we are very happy to welcome today, Dr. Mishari Kills from the University of Chicago. Dr. Kills is an associate professor in comparative human development. Her work focuses on understanding how race, ethnicity, and poverty structure the supports and challenges that children and youth experience. She directs the Trauma Responsive Educational Practices Project, which is a research translation and research practice partnership project that aims to connect the brain and behavior research on developmental trauma and the realities of school and classroom management. Dr. Kills will also be here at UMass in person, lucky us, to give a talk about her recently published book, Campus Counterspaces, Black and Latinx Students Search for Community at Historically White Universities on November 9th in the Old Chapel at 11.30 a.m. Dr. Kills, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me and happy to be here. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. We're so excited, mostly for your your visit, to be honest. Um, But I'm also very happy to have you on the podcast. Um, But we're so excited to have you on campus soon. So I'm going to jump right in. Um, We typically start the pod with uh, getting an introduction of you, who you are, um, so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit more. So if you can take a moment to tell me a little bit about yourself and the work that you're doing at the University of Chicago. Sure. Um, So I guess part of a little bit about me and the um, I've learned, uh, I cannot remember who said the quote, but I saw it in a movie and I've since attached it to myself in the way that I think about what I do. Because I was like, yes, that's me. It says, um, I am driven by my curiosities, uh, which means that um, part of the reason I'm in an interdisciplinary department is that it's just that I am not disciplined enough to be <laughs> in one particular field and, and department of study. But really what unites kind of everything that I'm interested in is just this the aspect of how those sociodemographic things, um, race and household income, poverty, neighborhood poverty, school poverty, just makes um, life experiences so different in, mm-hmm. in you know, Western societies why that matters so much. And then for kids, how can we help them um, get around that, get around the fact that those things are going to structure so many of their experiences as kids and then structure their life outcomes. And for me, that started um, in high school where I, um, one summer, I worked as a camp counselor at a camp that was for children in foster care. Mm. And it's just seeing how different their home family and life experiences were, and all of like the inputs and all the things that my parents and my family were doing with me, I knew, um, got to know that summer that they weren't getting those things at mm-hmm. home and in their lives. And so, you know, we were here as summer camp counselors, really trying to, in this kind of summer period, give all of these inputs, all of these extra experiences that for me were just a regular part of my life. And so that kind of started this journey of thinking about how so like just how we should get structured and get diverted onto these different pathways and how can our social institutions um specifically for me our schools really uh be the institutions that they're supposed to be which are institutions that uh, enable us to kind of break those intergenerational um transmission of poverty and intergenerational transmission of inequality And what does it really take? What does it really mean for schools to do that? I started out and did most of my work on K-12 institutions for the longest time because I was, I had the mistaken idea that all we needed to do was get them into college. So we make sure that our K-12 schools are strong. We make sure that those are places and spaces where we can prepare them as, as 
well as possible and get them into college. Once we get them into college, they're good. You know, we're getting them in prepared. And, um, I don't remember what it was that, um, initiated my learning on just the disparity in, um, persistence in college, in the, their college experiences. And so many who do persist and graduate are also not necessarily as mentally and emotionally healthy Mm -hmm. as we would want, um, young people to be at the end of their college time. And also so many of them drop out and don't make it through college. And so they end up with a lot of debt yeah. for those who don't make it through. And so for me, it was just this moment when I kind of learned that, oh, nope, it's not just getting them in, it's getting them in and getting them through. Mm-hmm. That started the second part of my um, work of looking at um, kids in college. And so, and with that, it was also really interested in kids who have all the, they're prepared, they're motivated, they have all of those prerequisites. And so what then is it? What are those other things that are um, stumbling blocks and challenges? And so I think for everything, it's like looking at the things outside the individual mm. that makes it so much harder for their potential to shine. Yeah. Thank you for that. And I feel like that's perfect for us to dive into um, talking about your new book a bit. So Campus Counterspaces, Black and Latinx Students' Search for Community at Historically White Universities. Um, you've talked about how universities have put a lot of effort into recruiting and bringing more um, diversity to their student populations, um, in particular Black and, and Brown students. Um, but that that more diversity has not necessarily translated to a better experience for these Black and Brown students. Can you talk a little bit about that? Um, in particular, how are universities falling short of their responsibility to these students? Right. So I, I hope, I can't say, but I hope that some of that is changing um, as yeah. we come out of the pandemic and all of the, the increased awareness mm-hmm. of um, socioeconomic, social, life disparities. Um, across every aspect of our society that just that it was always there, yeah. but general public awareness of it, um, I would say had lulled and gotten to this space of complacency. Um, and so I hope, I do hope that things are changing as we come out of the pandemic. Um, but essentially it was this idea that it was bringing kids to campus that mattered, recruiting diverse cohorts. Yeah is what you heard a lot about in the years before the pandemic. It's just lots of celebration, lots of um, like chest thumping about how we are recruiting more and more diverse cohorts. We're bringing more of these students to campus. We're having more um, of these diversity fellowships and at every level in the undergraduate, graduate and postdoctorate, this idea of just bringing more and more of them to campus. Yeah. Um, And so then this kind of perception that we've done our job by bringing them and which is essentially what I was kind of saying about where I was before really Mm -hmm. thinking about the persistence piece. And also, are they going through college in a way that ensures that they're going to be healthy, mentally healthy at the end of this process? Or do they have to um, stress themselves out so much? And give up so many pieces of their identity mm-hmm. that they um, that college comes at a very heavy cost. Those were some of the things that I was beginning to hear about how college was fa- failing students, um, Black students and Latinx students, was this aspect of how much they had to either pay a really heavy price yeah. in order to succeed, or they just couldn't find a sense of fit um, that that enable them to have those, those um, I'm, I'm going to say motivational pieces, but it's not motivation in um, succeeding in college, but it's the motivation where you see yourself in the culture of the institution yeah. and you see yourself in the artifacts of the institution. And that communicates to you that you belong here you can do it here because look, you know, 
you're all your culture, other individuals who have succeeded um, that look like you, that have a background like yours. And it can be a socioeconomic background. It can be race and ethnic background. There are many ways, um, many identity features that colleges can communicate, but largely what they communicate is, you know, um, upper income white men are the individuals who succeed here, who naturally fit here, um, you know, and that when you're seeing that all around you, that that is that really it's a big challenge in the um, book. I know that um, some of the students talk about the like the hall of the halls of white men <laughs> and that they would walk through and see all those pictures and kind of begin to question themselves. Yeah. Um, being at these institutions and question, can I can I really make it here? Yeah, yeah. I think is interesting. The halls of white men is um, so interesting and coming from a business school. I'm very familiar with those halls of the the older white men who have donated lots of money to that particular school. And thinking to some of the reasons why these spaces exist um, or some of the reasons why people have given as to why these spaces exist, what I've heard as far as, you know, why does this wall of white men, like, can't we find some diversity? There are, of course, people who have given um, to the university who aren't just white men. And some of the, the pushback I've heard um, at our campus, as well as other institutions, is that, well, you have to give a certain amount, right? So it almost seems like these arbitrary rules of who gets to be placed around the spaces. Um, and, you know, culture, when we think about culture, artifacts are so important to culture. They reinforce the culture, right? So it's so interesting to imagine walking around a a college and never seeing someone on a space on a wall that looks like you and the message that that sends to you and other people that look like you about belonging. Um, So it's, you know, in some ways it feels like we can say that we value these things as much as we want to, but until we're able to, to see it ourselves reflected is going to be very unconvincing to most students. Yes. And the other aspect of it is that all of those artifacts, names on buildings, pictures on the walls, um, crests um, all around, is that those communicate messages 24-7. And they're always there. Whereas um, when you're trying to counter those messages, you have to make kind of these deliberate, intentional interventions to present a different message that only happens sporadically, those interventions, whereas all of those artifacts, they're always there. Um, and so it's really the, the, the weight of the difference really yeah. matters. Yeah, no, that I hadn't thought about it in that way, comparing the two. That's powerful to think about. So in your book, you follow a cohort of Black and Latinx students at five historically white institutions. Um, and you found that one of the things that they were looking for are what you call these counter spaces um, or safe spaces where they can have conversations about racism, discrimination, life, et cetera, et cetera. Can you define for us counter spaces and talk a little bit about how they manifest on college campuses? Yeah. So one of the things I need to say is that um, in the study, we were not, we did not set out to um, examine and think about counter spaces in any way. It just so happened that we started the study in 2013 and we were following these students when the safe safe spaces debate, public debate broke out. And that a lot of the initial um, kind of public news communication and discussion around safe spaces was that they were spaces that were infantilizing for students and that they were spaces that um, needed because uh, Black and Latinx students and other minority students were weak, intellectually weak, emotionally. And so they needed to escape um, from challenging ideas on campus. They need to escape from intellectually complex ideas on campus. And that's what safe spaces were. 
And what we were, and so we were just reading through our transcripts, reading through our interviews, and we never explicitly asked about safe spaces, but we did ask the questions about belonging. And we did ask the questions about where they make their social connections and where they feel comfortable and who they talk to and where they get information about how to do college and all of those types of things. So we were asking those types of questions around the research and what we know about belongingness and connectedness and seeing a place on campus. And also the fact that um, minority students need information from their peers in the ways that other students who have college educated parents and grandparents can get that information through their family information um, heritage. College students who are first generation or minority and have don't have that resources in their family and in their network, they need that information from their peers. And so we were asking around those types of questions. And what we were just hearing was so different was that, no, I need spaces on campus that challenge um, surface level discussions about race and difference and marginalization. I don't need to have discussions about whether marginalization is a thing. I need to have discussions around um, how do we uh, overcome marginalization? How do we break down these systems of, um, of power that I'm not a part of? I need to have these more complex conversations around how do I understand structural inequality? And I can't have those complex conversations if I'm still just trying to get someone to believe that marginalization matters. And so that's what they wanted in their counter spaces. They wanted these deep and in-depth and complex discussions. They wanted to be challenged about the power structure. And so uh, they felt they needed to be with others who had experiences of marginalization, who knew what that felt like, knew what it, and knows what it means to not have the information needed to navigate a system. Um, and then share that information, share counter narratives. Like what's a different way of understanding myself here at this institution? Do I really have to give up all of my cultural practices, um, you know, and cultural heritage in order to fit in here? Or are there other ways to be a student here? So those are all the things that are happening in counter spaces. So essentially it's spaces where individuals who are marginalized within a larger institution, can come together, share knowledge, share strategy, share support, and leave those spaces stronger than they were when they entered them. Yeah, um, thank you for that. Um, and in some ways, as you were explaining that, I thought of like feeding your soul, right? It's like you're looking for this space, this place where you can feel like your soul is being fed because oftentimes it feels like um at least what my students are telling me and being someone with multiple marginalized identities on a college campus i felt both as a student and faculty member is that it can the environment can eat away at your soul mm -hmm. having to do the things like code switching and having to explain these inequities and oppressions that you feel like are so salient in your everyday life um so thank you for that definition and talking us through these counter spaces. Um, what in your view should be the top priorities for universities when it comes to supporting Black and Latinx students? Yes, uh, so it's a general um, framework that's called like identity-based interventions, mm -hmm. which just means that with the, all of the programming that we do across campus, and across our institutions, we take time to think about whether individuals of particular status groups that are connected to identity um, and connected to how they experience a context might put them into um, micro sub um, subcontext where they actually experience the institution differently, or they mm. have different levels of knowledge. And so, for example, I just you know give the examples and there's there's a broad range of social science studies on this topic, but it's the idea of um, you can't assume 
that we all come into um, housing, into dorm housing with the same level of experience and the same level of sense of automated assumptions around belonging on campus. Mm -hmm. So some students come to campus with, like, it's just no question for them that they belong at this institution and at this campus. And so all that they need are technical pieces of information around, you know, how do you do this housing form or how do you select this? How do you select that? And there are no um, identity pieces to it that also need to be addressed. But for some other students, they're going to enter the campus. They're going to enter the housing questioning whether they should be there. And so they do need, in addition to just the technical pieces um, of how, you know, the housing and all of those things, they need um, institutionally supported events and orientations and moments and times that's that makes explicit signaling to them Mm. that you belong here um, and opens them and the institutions open for feedback Mm -hmm. around asking and surveying and find out, do they feel a sense of belonging rather than assuming that all students, well, they're here, so they must feel a sense of belonging and then responding accordingly for those students who tell you that they don't feel a sense of belonging. And the other thing I often say to to institutions is you can get that information from your current cohort and past couple of cohorts and use that to plan for the next cohort of kids coming in. Mm -hmm. So you don't have it. This is not something that needs that should be rebuilt every year where you can predict from past information which students are going to need some of these supports. There's, it's of course going to change over time, um, but it's not something that, that institutions are blind to when thinking about some of these orientation issues. Um, it, yeah, so it's, it's all of those pieces where we, we don't assume that everybody is going to experience the institution um, the same way. And this also matters for classes, for example, Mm -hmm. where some students um, are coming in very hesitant to actively participate in class, not because they don't know the information or can't learn the information, but the experience of being the only one or the only one of two makes you feel like anything I say in this class is going to be magnified or spotlighted. And so... I'm kind of going to shrink myself a little bit. Yeah. And oftentimes the ways for faculty members might do um, participation points or make assumptions around what participation tells them about the student's level of engagement in the class or intellectual ability to do the work can then compound the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, So that I, I, for example, I do um, participation very differently. I do, um, well, it's, the size of the class matters, but assuming that you have small enough classes, you know, where you can make some adjustments for participation. I do a lot of group work mm-hmm. um, that enables students to kind of communicate and participate and do things as a smaller group and then sharing out to the class rather than making all of the participation individual hand-raising participation because that predisposes and um, preferences the kids who come in with that like strong sense of self into this institution. And um, yeah, so just really thinking around all of those things, like what are some of the ways that social identity might affect how kids show up at this institution? So... Thank you for that. And the idea of thinking about this assumption of both belonging, but also the assumption of the knowledge about how to navigate a college campus is passed down by, you know, it's passed down generationally. So students of certain 
um, demographic identities, they have parents and grandparents who went to college and can pass on the information about how to engage. We actually had Anthony Jack, um, Dr. Anthony Jack, on campus last year. And he talked a lot about that in particular, um, just something as small as being able to go and speak to a faculty member during office hours. You know, there are certain students from certain groups, whether it be low income or otherwise, who parents, family members, you know, they're first generation. They don't understand those dynamics and that knowledge isn't being passed down to them. Um, raising your hand in class and understanding that connection to your grade. I mean, it's sometimes it takes students who don't have family members who have gone through this process. It takes them a semester or a year just to figure that piece out, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that's such an important, um, I think, part of this conversation. Thank you for sharing that. So we know that systemic change can be difficult, um, and especially at large institutions, when we think about predominantly white institutions, really big state schools, for instance, like a UMass, um, where tradition is so valued um, in the way that we've done things for a lot of folks, and not in particular saying at UMass, but in, again, at these really large, um, predominantly white institutions, the way that we've done things is the way that people assume we should continue to do them moving forward. Um, we have a very active student body here at UMass, um, very active. If you look at the news and you understand probably what's been going on here for the past month and a half or so. Um, and absolutely, the, the activism in our student body is something that we're proud of, um, regardless of how, how much additional um, labor it means for us as administrators. Um, it's something that we're proud of when you want students to continue to engage in that activism. But what would you say to our students and students at other institutions about how they can be successful change agents, um, particularly around these topics, um, or this topic in particular of these counter spaces and the role of the university and administration in providing these sorts of resources for our students? Yeah, um, I don't have a lot to say on that front um, because really for one, I do think the students know better than me and better than us oftentimes. Mm -hmm. um, and honestly, there have been um, kind of three major um, kind of student-led initiatives on, on my campus around race and ethnicity, around and mental, two around race and ethnicity and one around mental health where truthfully the best thing was for faculty to simply listen to students. Mm -hmm. Students did a fabulous job of putting together um, what their demands were mm -hmm. and what they thought they needed um, and really putting out, putting together a list explaining why faculty were helpful with just tweaking that a little bit, um, supporting, you know, helping with writing the language of that a little bit, and then really just being behind, behind them um, yeah. in, in pushing those efforts forward. Um, we had a, a whole campus climate survey. It came out of really one of the students' demands for wanting hard data to go along with um, making it so the university couldn't dismiss mm -hmm. their uh, what they were saying they were experiencing. Um, and so out of that, I would actually say that one of the things that, to the students is um, asking for and finding out the either offices and, and or the faculty who collectively can support their strategizing. So give them a little bit of technical advice, give them maybe um, a little bit of support, you know, editing what they're doing, but really they, my sense is that they have a good sense of what they need. Yeah. And they need just support to move it forward mm -hmm. um, in, in ways that will be the most effective. Um, yeah. So sometimes that may not, they may not know how to then move it through the bureaucracy of the institution. And that's where, you know, faculty could be a little bit more helpful. I led the, our campus um, climate survey 
as a, you know, writing the survey questions, you know, doing the work of getting it, you know, IRB approval and getting it sent out and stuff like that. But it was the students' activism mm -hmm. that made it such that the institution had to do it. Um, but then, you know, faculty with the technical knowledge and technical expertise could get the process done, get the reports written and things like that. But so one thing that I say to students out of all of this is I say, you actually often have more ability to move this institution than I do um, because you are the customer. You are you and you have a different sense of, there's a different sense of res responsiveness that the institution um, takes when students come together and mm -hmm. ag agitate for change. And then faculty can help um, with the technical aspects or some of the bureaucratic aspects of it. But I often tell students that you actually have more power than I do when it comes, if you guys come together collectively and push for something, um, I can support you, but your voice is actually oftentimes stronger. Your collective voice is oftentimes stronger than faculty voice in moving the institution forward on student needs because yeah. oftentimes institutions see faculty as, um, well, your research, your intellectual, you, you, but you're not, but they don't really see us as, in, as um, our voice on the administrative pieces and on the student experience pieces. So that's one is what I say is um, just get the faculty to support what you guys want to do, yeah. um, actually, and help ask us for the technical pieces when you need information and support. Um, but your voice is oftentimes stronger than ours um, as, as an agitating voice for change. Um, and then the other piece that I say, and I say more and more now, is um, ask the demand that your institutions fund your work. So student work, meaning um, many students um, from historically marginalized backgrounds have some aspect of campus work hmm. in their aid packages. And there's no reason that that work has to be completed by shelving books in the library if they even do that anymore or other things like that that students do. Yeah. I'm like, your aid can actually, work aid can actually be completed by doing this work that you're doing around um, campus change. Mm -hmm. So that is one of the things that I do increasingly recommend that students ask for small pots of funding for the work that, because it is work, the work that they are doing to improve the climate and culture of their campus. Um, and lots of institutions have those small pots, but oftentimes they're given to the offices or to faculty mm -hmm. um, to do campus change or curricular initiatives and all these types of things. And I think that a little bit more of that should go to the students that are doing this work um, to, so that they're su more supported in their ability to do it. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it's, it's interesting, you know, I feel when you said that you tell students oftentimes you're more expert in these, in these issues, because you're living it every day than I am. Um, that's something that certainly resonates with me. Um, you know, I uh, certainly in our office, a point of pride is a connection to the data and the stories and the experiences of the people that we're trying to um, craft programs and initiatives to support. So for instance, when we think about our, um, our students of color, our black students in particular, when we are thinking about how to best support them, we're going back to the students. Um, we're having conversations with the students. We're looking at our campus climate survey data from 2016, and we're launching our next campus climate survey um, next Wednesday, actually, November 3rd. And those, those moments of data collection, those snapshots, as well as focus groups and conversations that we have between the years of our campus-wide campus climate survey are important pieces of data, right? I think sometimes, perhaps as administrators, we forget that um, data comes in a lot of different forms. 
Um, and oftentimes, if it's not a big campus climate survey, which I absolutely think is important, and I'm glad that our institution has been um, doing it for more than a few years now, but I feel like these moments of when students give a list of demands to administrators, that's data, right? That's students telling you what they want. When students do walkouts and they have signs and they're, you know, marching and they're voicing these requests and um, grievances, that those are all data points. Um, and I hope certainly we as an institution get better at collecting all those moments and pulling them together and analyzing them and being able to go back to our various student populations, again, in this case, in particular, our Black students and say, this is what we're hearing, this is what we're seeing um, in the data, in the narratives, in the stories, in the demands. Um, and this is what we think might be the best way forward. Let us know how you feel, right? And it should be some sort of dialogue, negotiation or conversation. Um, so I appreciate you sharing that whole piece about the students themselves being informative. And sometimes I think you said faculty or administrators just need to listen. Um, and I think that's that's so true and so important. So thank you for that. Yeah. So our campus has experienced some traumatic stuff that's happened this semester. We won't go into the details of it. Um, in particular, there was this incredibly vile anti-Black racist email that was sent, um, got a lot of external attention from various news outlets and obviously a lot of internal attention. And since then, we've been working very closely with the student groups who, in particular, who were targeted as well as the broader community to really heal. We've had a couple of events just around healing from anti-Black um, racism and, and, these, and trauma. Um, but even with that being said, there's this, there's this uh, sort of black box, it feels like, on a lot of institutions. Is for, how do you experience, treat, support trauma? Um, how do you support people who are actively experiencing trauma, right? If we think about anti-Black racism on college campuses, in the world, really, but let's just focus maybe on college campuses, the trauma isn't just when the, the emails were sent here at UMass. The trauma for a lot of Black students are happening, it's happening daily. Um, just again, I want to open this up to you as sort of this really, really big question as to how do you support people who are actively experiencing um, traumatic events, whether like the one that happened here with the emails or the daily um, slow drip sort of events that are happening and incidents that are happening around racism. Yeah, it's hard um, because It, there's no easy way to kind of, I wish there was, but the way life moves right now, there's no easy way to stop everything yeah. and give people time to heal. It's like the classes keep going on, the assignments keep piling up, the meetings keep, you know, it's the, they, whatever um, work they have outside of campus and on campus or anything like that. So there is the challenge of, life now feels like it moves at such a fast pace that there is no time to, there's very little time to pause and actually do the work needed for like psychological and emotional healing mm -hmm. after events. Um, so that is one thing that makes it tough. Another thing that makes it tough that I really understand about college campuses, there's so few, um, they're so limited um, in the mental health um, psychological supports in relation to the amount of need and particularly for um, racial ethnic minority students, counselors that have that cultural competency in their toolkit to be yeah. able to work through some of those things. Um, so saying all of that, it, it's which is why it's really important that students do have those kind of counter spaces where they can support each other in their healing, where um, various student groups and organizations can have collective events that are just for Black students for their healing in response to an event like what happened on your campus, where, um, so one of the things, for example, that students say happen in counter spaces, let's talk about um, counter space for Black students, 
is that something that, that um, let's just stick with black for a moment, like non-black individuals don't realize initially is that when you're in an all black space as a black person, your blackness actually fades away as being on stage. Yeah. And so you can then just focus on kind of just well-being and healing rather than also having to think about how is my blackness being presented in this moment and in this space. Um, and so it's hard to focus on healing if I, from a racist incident, if I also have to think about how am I, how is, what is my um, racial presentation in this moment? Yeah. And can I really say what I want to say about how I feel in this moment if it's in a mixed and diverse space? Whereas if it is in a space where it on like the, the racism that happened, where it's just black students, it's just about our healing. Um, and in this moment and in this space, all that we are going to do is do work on keeping each other well mm -hmm. and having those conversations. And again, it means that individuals don't have to rely on just their own coping skills or and rely on trying to get in to see an individual therapist or something like that. Mm -hmm. There is this other space where we can collectively come together and process this event that happened and leave that processing space feeling just a little bit stronger psychologically and emotionally. There's still a lot of work that has to be done. Um, but doing some of that emotional healing in collective spaces allows um, more people to get support and it helps them build networks of yeah. each other that they can then continue to support each other outside and after those, um, after those spaces and after those events. So that's one of the things um, why counter space, these counter spaces matter um, is because otherwise individuals are left to their own coping resources and co individual coping supports. And it's not an individual problem. So this is a collective problem. Mm -hmm. This is a collective experience. And by coming together to collectively support, you get much further in terms of the well-being on campus. Um, and I will also say, because um, one of the things that, that, you know, really came through in the book was that also there's some students who don't. There's there going to be some Black students who don't feel comfortable um, in that collective healing space mm -hmm. because of their history of experiencing their history of life experiences. They're still working on their um, racial identity mm -hmm. because maybe before coming to UMass, they attended all white students their whole all white schools their whole life, where yeah. um, they've always been struggling with their racial identity because they did never, they've never had that collective support in that way. And so when something happens like this on campus, the idea of coming to a collective black healing does not um, fit with their history of life experiences. And so they do need access to that individual counselor. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's also critical that we recognize um, those, those aspects um, of, and truthfully, uh, what, one of the things that we found were, those were the students who were the, I would say the most unwell in our study, mm -hmm. meaning the amount of stress and burden and strain, um, particularly since, you know, our, study was happening during the first um, Black Lives Matter um, uprising, those students who did not have strong racial connections on campus, Black students who didn't have strong racial connections on campus, um, were distressed mm -hmm. by all of the anti-Blackness, but were having to manage it in isolation. Um, and I will say that the reason they managed it in isolation is because the narrative that they picked up on their campus 
was that they would have to choose either between being black on campus or being a student on campus. Wow. Wow. And wow. So, that is, yeah. yeah, that is tough to think about, right? I mean, sitting here as a, a black woman, having to um, disaggregate my identities in that way, um, it's impossible, right? But if that's the narrative, if you suggested, there's been various things in the culture that have reinfor reinforced that narrative in that particular student's head, right? Um, but how powerful, but also incredibly disheartening to know that students are, were going through that in that moment and having to make those sorts of choices um, at such, you know, I can say this now being the age that I am, a tender age, right? <laughs> you, know, mm -hmm. you know, being so young and having to navigate um, these complex realities. Um, wow. Thanks for sharing that. And it's easier which is why it shouldn't all be left up to students, meaning mm -hmm. these counter spaces shouldn't be all left to be student created spaces. Those, those students who felt like I, am I, I'm, I either choose between a, being black on campus or being a student on campus felt that way in part because um, there were few institutionally supported formal spaces yeah. that, that where they felt like, okay, this is part of the institution, you know? they all felt, those students felt like um, to be black on campus means to single myself out. Yeah. Means, you know, that I am selecting out of the institutional um, organizations. Mm -hmm. um, but, but they definitely did say, that, which is why we say that counter spaces should be both student organized, but there also should be some that are institutionally organized to reinforce this idea that you can be a black student on campus. Like those yeah. are not separate identities. You don't have to choose one or the other. And uh, recognizing and being proud of your blackness on campus is not separating yourself from the institution. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's really helpful when they're both institutional events as well as student organized events. Yeah, as you were saying that, um, and then I, I should move on because you've been incredibly generous with your time today. But as you were saying that, I was just thinking that oftentimes institutions may create these spaces or these events or moments where they feel like um, this is inclusive to everyone, right? And not perhaps acknowledging that the everyone, if they're behaving in ways that are similar to how they behaved and created these things in the past, their everyone actually isn't a very broad group of people, right? Their everyone doesn't actually include our Black students or our disabled students, for instance. So I think, you know, that's so powerful to acknowledge the role of institutions and the responsibility of institutions in creating these counter spaces as well. Thank you so much, Dr. Kills. Is there anything else that you want to share with us today? I mean, you've, again, you've been generous with your time and you've given us so much information to digest alongside your book. No, I don't have anything else other than I am really looking forward to coming to campus, visiting you, visiting your students um, and other faculty and organizations. So, and that's in like two weeks. So I know forward to coming. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so quickly. Um, so we do have one last thing that we've tried. We've been doing, it's fun. Um, it's silly um, for someone of your intellect. Please bear with us as we go through this, but it's 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 a fun thing that we do at the end. Um, so this is how this works. I'm going to ask a series of random questions um, so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit better and you will just sort of blurt out the answers to them. Again, not intellectually um, stimulating even, but certainly not rigorous. So the first one is, what is your favorite flavor of ice cream? Uh, it has to be generally some anything that has either caramel in it or cherries in it. Oh, cherry. So you like the yeah. rich, you like the rich ice cream. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, oh yeah. Calorie. If I'm wasting, if not wasting, but if I'm using up calories on dessert, <laughs> like it has to be good. Yeah, no, I can dig that. If you can only read one book for the rest of your life, what book would it be? Uh, yeah, I can't. <laughs> 
I can't yeah. answer. The, I can't, can't choose. No, <laughs> I cannot choose. Right now, I am totally in um, an Octavia Butler um, moment. I've dug up all of her stuff because, you know, pandemics, mm-hmm. uh, you, you, disaster. So I definitely, hers was the first set of books that I went back to. Um, when the pandemic hit and now like a month ago, I, I went back and found an even older set. So Octavia, right now I'm in this kind of like disaster pandemic sci-fi Octavia Butler and, you know, her descendants. Mm-hmm. Well, if, yeah. if you're going to be in a moment that you're going to repeat over and over and over again for the rest of your life, Octavia Butler is a moment to be in. So um, I think that's a good choice. What is something you still have from your childhood? I would say one of the things that I still have from my childhood is right outside my door, which is um, some 1970s, um, they are fabric wall hangings that were my mom's that had, that were up in the house when I was a kid, um, Mm -hmm. like around five, six, seven. And she had, you know, after they were totally out of style, um, rolled them up and kept them. They have like leather backing on them. Like they're totally 1970s. I know exactly and, what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. And so I, a couple years ago, I found them and I was like, these are so tacky. They are back in style and they're going <laughs> up on the wall. Yeah. I love that. It's amazing how those, um, those keepsakes from our childhood and beyond is sort of passed on. And there just comes a moment in your life where you're like, this is the moment where I want to celebrate this. Um, I love that. Thank you for sharing. Dr. Kills, thank you so much for joining us today. It was an absolute pleasure and you were very generous with your time. So I appreciate that as well. Yes, it was great. Yes. So it's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. I'm excited to continue to follow your work. Um, And I'm also so excited that you're coming to campus. Um, Again, for our listeners, this is a visit you cannot miss Thursday, November 9th, 1130 to 1 p.m. in the beautiful old chapel. Um, Dr. Kill's talk, stepping outside the diversity box, considering multiple dimensions of inclusion in our work with students. And you can also buy Dr. Kill's incredible book, Campus Counterspaces, Black and Latinx Students Search for Community at Historically White Universities, wherever books are sold. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in today to Dignity and Respect in Action. We hope you've enjoyed the conversation and remember to hit subscribe so that you never miss a podcast. Until next time, I'm your host, Dr. Neff Walker.